0: welcome to the Veridical Podcast. I'm Jack Alright, episode 4. I am grateful to have made it this far, and it's been a really fun journey. I am always pleasantly surprised by the amount of people I know that have been listening to this without me prompting them to listen to this. And for all y'all that take the hour out of your day to... yourself that what i have to say is worth hearing i am grateful that really does mean the world to me And, and, and really step back and imagine that someone wants to listen to what you have to say for an hour or longer on a subject and not converse with you about it in the moment that is a big deal and i don't overlook it and I'm not saying I am the final word on all topics discussed here, but to know that my opinion, that of a 22-year-old, is worth hearing, I mean, that's just remarkable. I am grateful. And I promise not to neglect your time. So, episode four. Today, we will be discussing the book Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. By Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, Yuval is a historian, a philosopher, he's also the author of Sapiens, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, he also wrote 21 lessons for the 21st century, and his books have sold almost 30 million copies in 60 languages. He's considered one of the world's most influential public intellectuals by today. So we certainly have someone with the accolades to write a dense book and Homo Deus I'm just gonna say off the bat is remarkable this book is one of the most gripping things I have ever read I mean just the title alone a brief history of tomorrow just the foreshadowing from the front cover is more than enough to tell you what this book is about to unveil. I also want to note that I intentionally do not exhaust the contents of the book. I believe book sales should be higher in the world, and I don't want anyone to think that they have a good market on the contents of the books I discuss from this podcast alone. If I enjoy a read such as Homo Deus, I will go out of my way to make sure that i promote the sales of the book and that no one thinks that they don't need to get the book because they listened to a podcast and read a summary online about it so uh if you do find this book interesting which i hope you do uh, do not feel restricted to go out and purchase it every page really will give you something new that you did not get from this podcast so with that in mind Let's get an overview on the topics that you've all presents. So first up for discussion is the idea that humans have outgrown the need for God. Uh, we'll be diving into some of the statistics about the biological poverty line, uh, discussing existentialism, the right to happiness, manipulating human biochemistry, uh, A lot of different examples and stories to expound on to, advance the points. Uh, We'll discuss the topics of all living beings are mere algorithms. There's some animal experiments to dive into there. The Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness. Cooperation and revolutions. The threat of subjectivism. Uh, Some points on China. The move away from God. Uh, Transforming ourselves into the new gods. The idea of following your heart. The nature of art and AI and certainly AI will be one of the bigger topics so that sounds like a lot and it kind of is but we'll move through it quite briefly while not neglecting any of the topics and hopefully this book will serve as a wake-up call for many of us to start paying attention to current social political and environmental trends the future really is in our hands, and we have done nothing as a society but demonstrate our ability to fail. Uh, No doubt we've had some advances and some glimpses of victories on the anthropomorphic scene, but other than that, the future seems rather grim, and this book does nothing but exhaust that, and of course the book also delivers some options of hope. But they're all shrouded in modernity and humanism, and I do consider myself, to some degree, a humanist, and that'll be expounded later. Um, But other than that, this book really does get you thinking. So let's start it off on one of the first topics, the idea that we've outgrown God, and... Yuval starts off with some pretty interesting facts. You don't know if they're really good in nature or more depressing, Um, but they do serve to make a point. Yuval wants to stress that God used to serve a purpose, and that was agricultural. He also explained war, famine, and plague. But out of all the despairs for humanity, These have fallen out of fashion. So, uh, he gives some pretty intriguing facts here. He talks about how for the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age rather than infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. And so, all of our downfalls really are on us. And he calls this the biological poverty line, and how everything kind of orbits around bad luck. It's no more natural forces that are tearing you apart. Of course, there is the off-chance hurricane, there is the occasional drought, and the occasional tsunami, along with the earthquakes and the fault lines. But most suffering is man-made these days. For example, he talks about the Famine in Europe in the year of 1694, how it killed 2.8 million French citizens, which, in that time, was 15% of their population. And then, after that in 1695, famine killed a fifth of the population in Estonia, and then Finland later, where a quarter to a third of the people died, and then even in Scotland, where They lost almost one-fifth of their population, so famines like that are not common today, whereas two-three hundred years ago, that was regular. More on the topic of eating and food, he talks about how even the poor are overfed to an extent. Now, of course, there's still homeless that are starving, and the book makes clear not to neglect that fact. but. In low-income neighborhoods, you see more of the fat, high-caloric foods. This is why when you're in Beverly Hills, it's really not common to see a McDonald's, but it will be more common to see a Whole Foods or a Sprouts. Meanwhile, the slums of our American cities are littered with just the most disgusting food you can imagine. So, Taco Bells, Wendy's, Jack in the Boxes. On almost every corner and so our poor are gouged with these things and you've all has a quote here it says whereas the rich residents of Beverly Hills eat lettuce salads and steamed tofu with quinoa in the slums and ghettos the poor gorge on Twinkie cakes Cheetos hamburgers and pizza in 2014 more than 2.1 billion people were overweight compared to 850 million who suffered from malnutrition half of humankind and listen to this. Half of humankind is expected to be overweight by 2030. So, this clears up the idea that famine is still a common problem. Now, again, in Sudan and Somalia and other areas like that where people are starving to death, that is not a natural famine. You, you see, the people there could be fed if it wasn't for human factors. So, you can comfortably say, that, if there is a person in the world starving today, it's probably because a politician is okay with it, and permitting or even causing it. Next moving into the idea of plagues, and I want to note that this book was written in 2017, so before coronavirus and also before the Russian-Ukrainian incident, but I think even with Corona and the Ukrainian conflict, his points still stand. And we'll discuss that later. But moving into plagues talks about a black death in the 1300s. And when you hear the death counts of Black Plague, it is remarkable how many people this thing killed. It is groundbreaking how many died. And it's crazy to imagine what the world would be like today, population-wise, if Black Death never happened. So just to give you, some statistics here. Between seventy-five and two hundred million people died because of Black Death. And that's one fourth of the population of Eurasia. And in England, 40% of their people died. And another startling example of plague is with the Spanish flu, which began around in World War One in nineteen eighteen. And The Spanish Flu killed almost 50 to 100 million people in less than a year. And for context, the First World War killed 40 million people in four years. So what the First World War claimed in four years, the Spanish Flu claimed in less than one. Moving on from there, the third purpose that God used to help explain but is no longer a problem to modern day societies. Is war, so again, this was written before the Ukrainian conflict. But if you look at wars in history, the Ukrainian conflict is a mere skirmish compared to what wars used to be. So just just Google the death count of the Ukrainian conflict so far, and then compare that to the 50 million from World War One, or the tens of millions killed in World War Two. Right? You, you look back in the 1900s, we had four wars, right? Definitely more, but just ones that America was involved in. Five, if you count the Cold War. So World War One, World War Two. we had Korea, we had Vietnam, and the Cold War. Okay, war is not as prevalent as it was before. Now, the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts lasted around 20 years, and you could argue they're still going on today, but... That is a strange conflict, and the combat there is very different from traditional warfare, where it's faction versus faction. There it is more of a war of ideas, and any philosopher will claim that you never win or finish a war on ideas. So in contrast to previous wars, we have these great statistics saying In 2012, about 56 million people died throughout the world. War killed only a mere 120,000 of them, while crime killed the other 500,000. In contrast, 800,000, this is 200,000 away from a whole million, committed suicide. And 1.5 million died from diabetes. So the statistic is real. Sugar is more dangerous than gunpowder. And McDonald's, Is more of a threat than Al-Qaeda. This is the wake-up call. That we, as a society, are literally killing ourselves. And so to tie up this initial thesis, uh, Yuval writes, We have managed to bring famine, plague, and war under control, thanks largely to our phenomenal economic growth, which provides us with abundant food, medicine, energy, and raw materials. Yet this same growth destabilizes the ecological equilibrium of the planet in myriad ways, which we have only begun to explore. Humankind has been late in acknowledging this danger, and has so done far little about it. Despite all the talk of pollution, global warming, and climate change, most countries have yet to make any serious economic or political sacrifices to improve the situation. When the moment comes to choose between economic growth and ecological stability, Politicians, CEOs, and voters almost always prefer growth. In the 21st century, we shall have to do better if we are to avoid catastrophe. So this sums up his initial thesis. And Yuval does a great job at presenting the story arc for the future. Right, right? We are in control. As the apex of creation, how do we manage to save the earth from ourselves? Yuval claims that now we can look forward. We don't need to hark on the past and our embarrassing history, but rather we get to shape the future, and technology is going to do most of the heavy lifting for us. And without foreshadowing too much, maybe it will do all the lifting for us. Yuval begins by outlining one of the eternal obstacles that humans have always faced, and that is death. This is where the existentialism comes in for the secularist. He is declaring that even old age is an attack on our rights to live. So here he says, rather for modern people, death is a technical problem that we can and should solve. Now, this is not accidental death or injury or trauma-related death. Even your expiration date at 90 years, right, maybe you'll... Live to be that long, that death is still an attack on your rights. And he brings up a very interesting thing. He brings up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And he says that it doesn't quote that you have the right to life until the age of 90. It says that every human has a right to life, period. That right is not limited by any expiry date. And this can open a lot of strange holes, because now you've all, and many other humanists are advocating for eternal life here on earth by means of technology. And you can only imagine how anxious everyone would get, right? If if the only thing that can kill you is an accident, right, like a boulder falling out of the sky, or uh, let's say you, you fall on some sharp object. Right? You you could live forever, but injury can kill you. Right? <laughs> you would hardly leave your house. But uh, that's not the point, it's just an observation. And these aren't only my speculations, Yuval also shares these uh, concerns and observations. He says, today people still expect to be married till death do us part, and much of life revolves around having and raising children. Now try to imagine a person with a lifespan of 150 years. Getting married at 40, she still has 110 years to go. Will it be realistic to expect her marriage to last 110 years? Even Catholic fundamentalists might balk at that. So the current trend of serial marriages is likely to intensify. Bearing two children in her 40s, she will, by the time she is 120, have only a distant memory of the years she spent raising them, a rather minor episode in her long life. It's hard to tell what kind of new parent-child relationships might develop under these circumstances. He then talks about careers, and social engagements, and friendships, right, right, your career, will you be working at that same place for a hundred years? Probably not. So all of our social norms and cultural norms will fall away when our technology reaches this point. After this, Yuval transfers to the idea of the right to happiness, and uh, if many of y'all recall the... Declaration of Independence doesn't say the right to happiness, but rather the pursuit of happiness and I love the movie pursuit of happiness. It's a beautiful movie and Will Smith in the movie He talks about the idea of how smart do you have to be to Know that it's the right to pursue it and not the right to Right that it's always this distant idea Um, and back to the book you've all quotes Epicurus Uh, He says here, in ancient Greece, the philosopher Epicurus explained that worshiping gods is a waste of time, that there's no existence after death, and that happiness is the sole purpose of life, Right, right? The purpose of your life, your meaningless, small, and short life, is to get as much dopamine and serotonin chemicals in your brain as possible later on in the book he does epicurus justice by clarifying some points he says when epicurus defined happiness as the supreme good he warned his disciples that it's hard to work to be happy material achievements alone will not satisfy us for long indeed the blind pursuit of money fame and pleasure will only make one miserable epicurus recommended for example to eat and drink in moderation and to curb one's sexual appetites in the long run friendship will do a lot more than a frenzied orgy and then he follows with some very disturbing facts and these make me ashamed he talks about how in Peru Haiti the Philippines and Ghana which are developing countries suffering from poverty and political instability fewer than five people in 100,000 commit suicide each year in rich and peaceful countries such as Switzerland France Japan and New Zealand More than 10 per 100,000 take their own lives annually. And it goes on, right? So today in South Korea, which is a leading economic power, its citizens are among the best educated in the world and enjoys a stable and comparatively liberal democratic regime. Yet whereas in 1985, about 9 South Koreans per 100,000 committed suicide, today the annual rate is 36 100,000. What does this say? Yuval is trying to tell us that progress and economic growth and technological advancements will not solve some of our bigger existentialist problems, right? Where the people in Ghana and Haiti and Sudan and the Congo are finding relief somewhere else. Right? Maybe it's God, maybe it's family, maybe it's something more. All we can say for sure is that it's immaterial, and you have to believe in the metaphysics of immateriality to be able to grasp these ideas. right? If you don't believe in the immaterial, you are restricted to atoms, and it makes sense to follow your heart and pursue money and sex and all those material things. Right? It just makes sense. And Yuval agrees, right? He believes that if we can develop a pill that will make us artificially happy, then why not do it? And that brings us to the next idea of changing our biochemistry. Yuval admits that happiness and love and joy and negative things like fear and anger, well these are just chemicals and These are just reactions in your brain. And if we can develop a way to alter those artificially, why not do it? Yuval gives a really remarkable observation. He says, fear, depression, and trauma are not caused by shells, booby traps, or car bombs. They're caused by hormones, neurotransmitters, and neural networks. Two soldiers may find themselves shoulder to shoulder in the same ambush. One will freeze in terror, lose his wits and suffer from nightmares for years after the event. The other will charge forward courageously and win a medal, probably. The difference is in the soldier's biochemistry, and if we find ways to control it, and we will, at one stroke produce both happier soldiers and more efficient killing armies. Yuval outlines many countless examples throughout the 400-page book about times where we are already at this point. So... A famous example is of a psychologist going into a soldier R&D area, and she's told to shoot at some targets with a weapon, and she fails pretty miserably, misses a lot of them, and she even gets discouraged. And then they give her a helmet, and I I will emphasize this is all R&D, none of this is general-issued at these days, but anyway, she's given this helmet, and Not only does she hit all the targets with amazing accuracy, she says she was fearless, and she wanted to do more of it. And this dispels the idea that this is in the future. Because this is happening now, right? Antidepressants are a more socially accepted example of this, as are mood pills. And all of these are altercations in your biochemistry, and though we are grateful for many of these, by now I assume you listeners will begin to see the slippery slope that is growing larger and larger on the horizon. Yuval talks a lot about a lot of changing norms, and one of them is very perplexing, and that is the case of the three-parent child. And I'm gonna be honest, The way Yuval presents it in his book just sounds like fancy eugenics. And I am not a subscriber of eugenics, and I tend to put it down whenever I hear talk of it, but out of sake of being courteous to Yuval's position, uh, we can entertain it here. So Yuval talks about genetic engineering, and how we will be able to uh, alter our DNA sequences and fully be able to revamp child rearing, right? You will enter a stage in our future where we'll just fertilize a thousand eggs and you select the one with the best genes, the ones that you think are most convenient and better to pass on. And of course, this sounds good. And up to that point, I am in full support. And no doubt many people are angry at me for just admitting that, but I stand with it. If you can effectively rid the world of autism and polio, and all other sorts of dreadful birth defects, then why not do it? I am there with that. However, it gets to the point where we get rid of a lot of these uh, traits, but then start choosing more and more desirable ones. And when you enter a new age of a new, let's say, biological trend, So it's now ideal to be seven feet instead of six feet. And you can imagine all the current six-footers alive in that society may start to feel ostracized. And this sounds like a harmless example, but you can begin to see the slippery slope here as well, where more and more current uh, living people are then ostracized because a new trend has emerged through eugenics. There's, of course, also the complication of When does a life begin? And uh, we'll not be discussing that in this podcast, but for those that uh, are vocal on that talk, then you can see how this is also complicating. One extremely persuasive uh, talk on cultural trends is the idea of lawns. And by lawns, I mean those green patches of grass in your front yard. And (laughs) I wanna read Yuval's section on the history of lawns because I'll admit it changed my mind and uh, You can hear me laughing. It's 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 entertaining, but it's also kind of awakening so uh, I Give you the history of lawns if history doesn't follow any stable rules And if we cannot predict its future course, why study it? It often seems that the chief aim of science is to predict the future Meteorologists are expected to forecast whether tomorrow will bring rain or sunshine Economists should know whether devaluing the currency will avert or precipitate an economic crisis. Good doctors foresee whether chemotherapy or radiation therapy will be more successful in curing lung cancer. Similarly, historians are asked to examine the actions of our ancestors so that we can repeat their wise decisions and avoid their mistakes. But it also never works like that because the present is just too different from the past. It is a waste of time to study Hannibal's tactics in the Second Punic War so as to copy them in the Third World War, what worked well in cavalry battles will not necessarily be of much benefit in cyber warfare. Since it's not just about predicting the future though, scholars in all fields often seek to broaden our horizons, thereby opening before us new and unknown futures. This is especially true of history. Though historians occasionally try their hand at prophecy, the study of history aims above all to make us aware of possibilities we don't normally consider. Historians study the past, not in order to repeat it, but in order to be liberated from it. Each and every one of us has been born into a given historical reality, ruled by particular norms and values, and managed by a unique economic and political system. We take this reality for granted, thinking it is natural, inevitable, and immutable. We forget that our world was created by an accidental chain of events, and that history shaped not only our technology, politics, and society, but also our thoughts, fears, and dreams. The cold hand of the past emerges from the graves of our ancestors, grips us by the neck, and directs our gaze towards a single future. We have felt that grip from the moment we were born, so we assume that it is a natural and inescapable part of who we are. Therefore, we seldom try to shake ourselves free, and envision alternative futures. I'll fast forward to the part on lawns here. The idea of nurturing a lawn at the entrance to private residences and public buildings was born in the castles of French and English aristocrats in the late Middle Ages. It is the early modern age that habits struck deep roots and became the trademark of nobility. Well-kept lawns demanded land and a lot of work, particularly in the days before lawn mowers and automatic sprinklers. In exchange, they produced nothing of value. You can't even graze animals on them because they would eat and trample the grass, Poor peasants could not afford wasting precious land or time on lawns. The neat turf at the entrance to Chateau was accordingly a status symbol nobody could fake. It boldly proclaimed to every passerby, I am so rich and powerful, and I have so many acres and serfs that I can afford this green extravaganza. The bigger and neater the lawn, the more powerful the dynasty. If you came to visit a duke and saw that his lawn was in bad shape, you knew he was in trouble. The precious lawn was often the setting for important celebrations and social events, and at all other times was strictly off limits. To this day in countless palaces, government buildings and public venues, a stern sign commands people to, quote, keep off the grass. In my former Oxford college, the entire quad was formed of a large, attractive lawn on which we were allowed to walk or sit on only one day a year. On any other day, woe to the poor student whose foot desecrated the holy turf. Royal palaces and ducal chateaux turned the lawn into a symbol of authority. When in the late modern period, kings were toppled and dukes were guillotined, the new presidents and prime ministers kept the lawns. Parliaments, supreme courts, presidential residences, and other public buildings increasingly proclaimed their power in row upon row of neat green blades. Simultaneously, lawns conquered the world of sports. For thousands of years, humans played on almost every conceivable kind of ground, from ice to desert. Yet in the last two centuries, the really important games, such as football and tennis, are played on lawns, provided of course you have the money. In the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, the future generation of Brazilian football is kicking makeshift balls over sand and dirt, but in the wealthy suburbs, the sons of the rich are enjoying themselves over meticulously kept lawns. Humans thereby came to identify lawns with political power, social status, and economic wealth. No wonder that in the 19th century, the rising bourgeoisie enthusiastically adopted the lawn. At first, only bankers, lawyers, and industrialists could afford such luxuries at their private residences. Yet when the Industrial Revolution brought in the middle class and gave rise to the lawnmower and then the automatic sprinkler, millions of families could all of a sudden afford a home turf. In American suburbia, a spick-and-span lawn switched from being a rich person's luxury into middle-class necessity. This was when a new rite was added to the suburban liturgy. After Sunday morning service at church, many people devotedly mowed their lawns. Walking along the streets, you could quickly ascertain the wealth and position of every family by the size and quality of their turf. There is no sure sign that something is wrong at the Joneses than a neglected lawn in the front yard. Grass is nowadays the most widespread crop in the USA, after maize and wheat, and the lawn industry, including plants, manure, mowers, sprinklers, and gardeners, accounts for billions of dollars every year. The lawn did not remain solely a European or American craze. Even people who never visited the Lower Valley see U.S. presidents giving speeches on the White House lawn, important football games played out in green stadiums, and Homer and Bart Simpson quarreling about whose turn it is to mow the grass. People all over the globe associate lawns with power, money, and prestige. The lawn is therefore spread far and wide, and is now set to conquer even the heart of the Muslim world. Qatar's newly built museum of Islamic art is flanked by magnificent lawns that hark back to Louis XIV Versailles, much more than of Haran al-Rashad's Baghdad. They were designed and constructed by an American company, and there are more than 100,000 square yards of grass in the midst of the Arabian desert, requiring a stupendous amount of fresh water each day to stay green. Meanwhile, in the suburbs of Doha and Dubai, middle-class families pride themselves on their lawns. If it were not for the white robes and black hijabs, you could easily think you were in the Midwest rather than the Middle East. Having read this short history of the lawn, when you now come to plan your dream house, you may think twice about having a lawn in the front yard. You are, of course, still free to do it, but you are also free to shake off the cultural cargo bequeathed to you by your European dukes, capitalist mongrels, and the Simpsons. And imagine for yourself a Japanese rock garden, or some altogether new creation. This is the best reason to learn history, not in order to predict the future, but to free yourself of the past and imagine alternative destinies. Of course, this is not total freedom. We cannot avoid being shaped by the past, but some freedom is better than none. So, that was a lot, but it does serve a point, even if it is humorous. This idea of all the cargo we carry from cultural norms that serve no true purpose right we may think of lawns but also maybe blessing people whenever they sneeze we know that really does nothing things such as taking your hat off for prayer or for the pledge what does that signify i mean certainly there's a history there but it doesn't actually mean anything in terms of reality it is just this metaphysical act of good faith that you do but really doesn't serve a purpose. And if you look down on people that don't take off their hats, or bless people when they sneeze, what are you actually looking down on? It's just that they're not subscribing to a norm that really serves no purpose. Next we are going to talk about a point that Yuval makes that was also very compelling to me. And that is the point on animals, and exactly how tied to animals are we. So. As many know I hold to a Protestant worldview I believe in an immaterial reality I do believe in the soul I do believe in free will though with many caveats but Yuval doesn't and it makes sense for someone who does not believe in God to be able to see very clearly that there is not really much gray area between us and animals now even though I do believe in Protestant Christianity, this book and the points that Yuval makes have really opened my eyes. And this actually stems from before reading Yuval's book. I've always been pretty perplexed and inspired, honestly, by the emotional and intellectual capabilities of animals. I think we really underestimate the sheer intellectual power that animals possess. And for all of the Christians that say that animal abuse is permissible simply on the grounds of having dominion, you are an embarrassment. And I say that pretty confidently. And when we look at how capitalism has completely wrecked our farms, I'll I'll add that I am a capitalist. Capitalism clearly is the best system to run an economy. but. When we look at what it has done to our farming and the sheer amounts of methane and pollution coming out of these farms, let alone the animal abuse in these farms, understanding the lines and how thin they are between human and animal capabilities is important. So I can see that our time here is going well past 30 minutes. This will be a longer episode because I do feel it is an imperative that we spend some time discussing uh, the emotional and intellectual capabilities that animals have. Yuval opens uh, Chapter 2, titled The Anthropocene, Anthro being human and Pocene being uh, our stage in the history of the universe, and he talks about our effects on the environment, particularly the lives of animals. So here uh, he says, how many wolves live today in Germany? The land of the Grimm Brothers, Little Red Riding Hood, and the Big Bad Wolf? Less than a hundred. And even these are mostly Polish wolves that stole over the border in recent years. In contrast, Germany's home to five million domesticated dogs. Although about 200,000 wild wolves still roam the earth, there are more than 400 million domesticated dogs. The world contains 40,000 lions compared to 600 million house cats, 900,000 African buffalo, versus 1.5 billion domesticated cows, 50 million penguins, and 20 million chickens. Since 1970, despite growing ecological awareness, wildlife populations have halved. And so, Yuval really points out our effects on the global ecology is drastic. And if we're going to sit here and pretend that there's not ramifications for that, we will face dire consequences. Yuval gives plenty of statistics here on our impact with animals, but to summarize it all up, we can confidently say that the Earth experiences a major extinction event every couple thousand years, and there's a good reason to suggest that we will be the cause of the next extinction event, and we may be included in what gets extinct. To explain how thin the lines are between us and animals, I'm gonna try to break this down. So as you've all stated earlier, everything is an algorithm. We are algorithms. And every living thing is an algorithm. As long as there's no soul, and as long as there's no free will, which because those are immaterial things, if they do exist, they can't be proven, then everything really is just matter. And it's clear that consciousness is attributed to these animals, even microscopic animals are conscious. And you can see this reflected in Thomas Nagel's hypothetical uh, statement of, what is it like to be a bat? And Sam Harris also talks about this at length. Uh, The fact that being a bat, or like a bat, is like anything at all, shows that there is consciousness and that we'll never understand it. Similarly, this goes to everything, and and likewise, nothing will know what it's like to be a human. And on an individual scale, no one will know what it's like to be me, and I won't know what it's like to be you. But the fact that there is an experience there shows that the lights are on. And as with every living thing, there are needs. So, you can imagine Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and the sequential order of those. And when we look at animals and ourselves, we find something surprising. And I think you all here kind of misses the point while admitting it himself. So you have the needs for survival and health and whatnot. But even when those are fully met, there's still a feeling of something just not being quite right. So your needs are, you know food, water, medicine, and shelter and, of course, reproduction. But then, why doesn't a prison feel good enough to people? Obviously, I guess we're leaving out reproduction there, but there's certainly ways of stimulating yourself to meet that need. So why is that still undesirable? Well, as all anthropologists and sociologists will admit, we have emotional needs. And having our emotional needs not met gives serious ramifications. We see disorders, we see unhealthy behaviors get adopted. Uh, No doubt this leads to a lot of suicides and a lot of schizophrenia and psychopathy. And why do we draw the line at humans? Where is the resistance to saying that animals have emotional needs? So, this is not me advocating for veganism, but we do have to take a philosophical approach to factory farming. All right, so if you're going to eat meat, in my opinion, it's understandable. But the way we go about it, um, it has some rough edges, and we need to look at them. I do believe, and this book has convinced me more than I already was convinced, that animals have emotional needs, and they need to be met. Not for Economic reasons and for those that are saying well when the animals taken care of it tastes better though true That may be This fact would stand alone if it wasn't the case I Would go a step further and say if taking care of the animals made them taste worse it would still be important and On a practical level I believe that farms should incorporate a social environment for the animals I am strictly against gestation cages where animals are pumped with uh, semen, fertilizing their eggs, in which they stand in a cage until they give birth, and where a sow would normally um, nurture the kids for 20 weeks, they're weaned off after four, and then the kids are then taken to be raised for slaughter, in which the mother is then forcefully impregnated again, and the cycle continues. And after five cycles of this just forced impregnation and ripping the children away, the sow can no longer perform the reproductive duties and is then killed. Okay. that is a moral outrage. And the fact that people are closing their eyes, uh, people that embrace science, but then when they see that, well, it's just not practical for the economy to implement uh, new restrictive measures, they back away. That is a sign of our cowardness, we just don't want to pay the extra. And we have to come to terms that if we want to value moral superiority or cheaper meat, which one are we going to claim? Many people will may gawk at that idea for a bit, and then quickly claim the affordable meat, but just know you're sacrificing your moral position. I'm gonna wrap up this section on animals by discussing a experiment done by Harry Harlow, which is outlined here in the book. Harry Harlow separated infant monkeys from their mothers shortly after birth, and isolated them in small cages. When given a choice between a metal dummy mother fitted with a milk bottle and a soft cloth covered dummy with no milk, the baby monkeys clung to the barren cloth mother for all they were worth. Those baby monkeys knew something about John Watson, and the experts of infant care fail to realize. Mammals can't live on food alone. They need emotional bonds too. Millions of years of evolution pre-programmed the monkeys with an overwhelming desire for emotional bonding. Evolution also imprinted them with the assumption that emotional bonds are more likely to be formed with soft furry things than with hard and metallic objects. This is also why small children are far more likely to become attached to dolls, blankets, and smelly rags rather than cutlery, stones, or wooden blocks. The need for emotional bonds is so strong that Harlow's baby monkeys abandon the nourishing metal dummy and turn their attention to the only object that seemed capable of answering that need. Alas, the cloth mother never responded to their affection, and the little monkeys consequently suffered from severe psychological and social problems and grew up to be neurotic and asocial adults. It's also to note that they died five years earlier than the average monkey does. This is depressing, but also revealing, and though I'm grateful that Harry Harlow could not do this experiment today, it tells us a lot, and we can take a lot from it. And it reveals that animals clearly do have emotional needs. And you can hold a Protestant worldview, as I do, and still admit this fact. Science does not get negated just because God is real. In fact, science should be valued even more. And if we are to believe in God and his creation, and that we have domain over it, where do we extrapolate that we can be cruel, unjust, and murderous to them? I I doubt if Jesus returned today and saw a factory farm. He would approve of it. And if you think he would approve of it, question yourself. Look at the way that... God orchestrates creation. Although I admit that Genesis 1-11 through is most likely a mytho-history claim, you can still extrapolate that God really values his creation. And we are blessed with science. Science does not counter God. Rather, it enhances our knowledge on him. And when we can see that the animals that we have uh, taken for agricultural needs are suffering needlessly, that is a sign that we should change something. And if your response to people advocating for animal well-being is that they are hippie liberals, just dig deeper, be intellectually honest, and ask, where are they wrong? And form an argument against animal well-being, right? If we could prove that animals don't feel pain, then yeah, we could worsen the conditions in our farms. If we found that animals do not have emotional needs, that they don't have feelings, or memories even, well we could certainly worsen the conditions. But when the science is screaming at you, the counter to all of these, that no, they do have memories, they do have fears, they do have emotional needs, then the only just and morally acceptable response is to cater to these needs, especially If we're going to kill them. While reading this, I decided to think practically. And I imagine a very grim uh, encounter. I imagine some officials headed to some farm in the Midwest. And encountering the owner of the farm and telling him something along the lines of, Hello sir, we need you to spend around $40,000 on this new fence. And this new garage and for two hours a day every day we need you to open the garage and let the animals out to graze so you're gonna have to supply uh, good grass and water and uh, they should all be able to socialize after that you need to bring them back in and continue on with your duty so if they get uh, the genders mixed up that's fine just reorganize them if you need to hire extra hands to open the garage and Manage the animals, that's fine, that's fine. Just uh, spend whatever money you need, but these are the new regulations. Well, I personally would support those regulations. I think that those are the uh, outcome we come to when we look at the science behind animal neurology. But who's going to vote for that? And who's going to support that? And what farmers will gladly pay for that? Honestly on the practical level of this I have reached a dead end. I I See the philosophy of it. I agree and subscribe to that, but I do not see a practical end Uh, that would require our government to supply the money and the fencing and the animal sorting for the farmers and Certainly that would come out of our tax dollars. I'm more than okay with increased taxes for that but uh we all know America and we know how much we value our money, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, that is a grim way to end the discussion on animal-human relations, and I'll leave it with a quote from Yuval Noah Harari here. In recent years, as people began to rethink human-animal relations, such practices have come under increasing criticism. We are suddenly showing unprecedented interest in the fate of so-called lower life forms, Perhaps, because we are about to become one. Moving on from that, back to more anthropocentric ideas, you've all asked the question, does might make right? Does your power and intellectual capabilities make you better? Well, we're certainly more stronger and intellectually capable than a pig, but on an honest level, the United States is more intellectually and physically capable than Afghanistan. Doesn't that make Americans more quote-unquote right than Afghanis? This gets down to how we value lives. And of course, the liberal idea is that all lives are equal, that all men and women and children have equal value, but on an algorithmic scale. And when we include entities such as the idea of a nation, of a corporation, we don't execute Our ideology of human value correctly so The life of the president is more valuable than your life and we can prove this right what measures? Will doctors in a hospital and the police go to to save your life? Versus if we found out that the president's life was at risk What would we do for ourselves or others if we knew our life was in danger? but when that's a child in the mountains of Torabora, Bora, well, you care less. And this is how we value human lives. We do not execute our ideology congruently with practicality. And that is unfortunate. And we should actively make steps to change that. And you've all advocates for that. Later in some other episodes in this podcast, we'll be discussing the effective altruist movement and the discomforting but philosophically... Uh, commendable ideas that they have at EA. And uh, moving on here in the book, Yuval goes on to uh, disparage the soul and how it is not real. Um, I understand his point of view. I understand his attempts to dismantle it. However, I think he's off to the wrong foot because he's trying to prove it in a lab. But laboratory science and observations and patterns can't prove something that's immaterial and so if a soul is real by nature it's going to be immaterial and uh, i can understand people's hesitation to accept the idea of a soul at that point but if it's immaterial and if its effects are not physical other than actions which can be measured by electroactivity in the brain then trying to find it by material needs will make you wind up empty-handed so, uh, through his pages and pages of dismantling the soul, he leaves out the important fact that you just simply can't see it. And, as you've all stated earlier, we are all algorithms. I personally do not subscribe to us just being a mere algorithm, but, again, I understand. So I'm gonna read uh, something that I think is very telling through the book. And Yuval uh, points us as a point of curiosity, I would say it's a point of proving that humans do have something that is immaterial to them. So he says, When thousands of cars slowly edge their way through London, we call it a traffic jam. But it doesn't create some great Lundian consciousness that hovers high above Piccadilly and says to itself, Blimmy, I feel jammed. When millions of people sell billions of shares, we call that an economic crisis. But no great Wall Street spirit grumbles, Shit, I feel I am in crisis. When millions of water molecules coalesce in the sky, we call that a cloud, but no cloud consciousness emerges to announce, I feel rainy. How is it, then, that when billions of electric signals move around in my brain, a mind emerges that feels, I am furious? As of 2016, we have absolutely no idea. Hence, if this discussion has left you confused and perplexed, you are in very good company. The best scientists, too, are a long way from deciphering the enigma of mind and consciousness, one of the wonderful things about science is that when scientists don't know something, they can try out all kinds of theories and conjectures, but in the end, they can just admit their ignorance. I, I think I'm biased here, but I'll admit I think this is more telling than it is perplexing. I wouldn't expect the idea of the soul and consciousness to be physical. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not open to being proven wrong, and if the science comes to show the origins of consciousness and the soul, I... I will revamp my worldview. And I'm open to it. But I'll also add, I personally don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's coming. I don't think that's on the horizon. But, uh, I'll leave that at that. And, uh, now we'll move to the next topic, and that is the idea of cooperation and revolutions. And this has been a very exciting part of the book. And... He gives a great, great example. He talks about the case of Nicolae Ceausescu, who was the Romanian dictator in the 1980s. And Yuval tells the story of what happened to Nicolae. So, Nicolae was, uh, like I said, the dictator. And uh, he ruled uh, the Communist Party there. And Yuval's point is that the thing that separates humans from animals is our ability to cooperate and organize And the revolution in Romania in the 1980s began when people realized their cooperation was useful. And there's this amazing YouTube video you can watch of Causescu losing his control of Romania in real time. So Nicolai is on the balcony, and uh, he organized this party. As other European countries were becoming democratized, he wanted to maintain his grip Uh, as you would expect. So he organized uh, a rally, and the government officials ordered people to show up and tune their radios and TVs, and the book uh, outlines kind of what happens here. He says, this is Kawasescu saying in real time, he says, I want to thank the initiators and organizers of this great event in Bucharest, considering it as a... And then he falls silent, his eyes open wide, and he freezes in disbelief. He never finished the sentence. You can see in that split second how an entire world collapses. Somebody in the audience booed. People still argue today who was the first person who dared to boo. And then another person booed, and another, and another. And within a few seconds, the masses began whistling, shouting abuse, and calling out, Team Masora, Team Masora. And from there, it got dismantled. Yuval points out that the evolutionary advantage that humans have is cooperation with masses. So all other animals can reach to some pretty staggering amounts. right? We think of ants and their, uh, their mounds and bees and their colonies. But those are nothing compared to the massive amount of cooperation and intellect needed in human cooperation. So, though ant mounds can sometimes uh, outnumber human cities, it is just picking up dirt, carrying it, and gestating kids. Whereas the cooperation needed to operate a city is economic coordination, right, right traffic coordination, infrastructure, um, water supply, right, air traffic control is a massive example of cooperation, engineering, and education. All of this requires an excessive amount of uh, cooperation. We cooperate on such an excellent level, we do it now involuntarily. This is not the same as saying humans are selfless, because we know we are not. But as far as economic cooperation goes, we have that nailed down. And on the topic of revolutions, if you want to control a country, if you want to rule millions and millions of people. With your group of a thousand just remove their ability to cooperate and you've all points out that yeah almost every dictatorship is organized around removing and organizing and we've seen that it works and we've seen that the only thing that can overthrow these is cooperation right the revolution against the British by America to seal our independence was mere cooperation and this is seen ad nauseum with hundreds of other cases of um, independence ceiling. Next, Yuval wants us to talk about the fictional realities. And that sounds like an oxymoron, and it technically is. The idea that fiction becomes reality. But we have examples of this. So laws, for example. Those are metaphysical entities. They don't actually exist. We made them up. Now, though I'll advocate that morality is objective, and it's objectively grounded into the hearts and souls of man, um, from a secular standpoint, that that just does not fly, for obvious reasons. And so, they do become fiction. They become these made-up ideas. And they are reality because we all subscribe to them, or at least the masses have advocated for them. And another example of this is, you know, cash money. So your cash is actually worthless. It doesn't really hold value other than the value that we give it. And you've all shared these just amazing examples of when governments have deemed a certain bill worthless and stores just stop accepting a certain bill. Can you imagine if tomorrow the $20 bill became worthless? What would that do to a lot of people's bank accounts? and for a lot of people that own many $20 bills in hard cash. That does a lot of damage. But that's just the fictional reality that we subscribe to. And to give a great example of how humans have learned to value metaphysical realities over their own reality, the physical reality, um, Yuval has an excellent story here of a heroic figure named Salsa Mendez. And uh, I'm just going to read it. In the spring of 1940, when the Nazis overran France from the north, much of its Jewish population tried to escape the country towards the south. In order to cross the border, they needed visas to Spain and Portugal, and together with a flood of other refugees, tens of thousands of Jews besieged the Portuguese consulate in Bourdeois in a desperate attempt to get the life-saving piece of paper. The Portuguese government forbade its consuls in France to issue visas without prior approval from the foreign ministry, but the consul in Bourdeois Arstides de Sousa Mendes decided to disregard the order, throwing in the wind a 30-year diplomatic career. As Nazi tanks were closing in on Bordeaux, Sousa Mendez and his team worked around the clock for 10 days and nights, barely stopping to sleep, just issuing visas and stamping pieces of paper. Sousa Mendez issued thousands of visas before collapsing from exhaustion. Sousa Mendez, armed with little more than a rubber stamp, was responsible for the largest rescue operation by a single individual during the Holocaust. So, it should be noted that the Portuguese government uh, then fired Salsa, ending his career. Uh, But they valued the papers, still. So they didn't value him, but they valued the papers. And all of those visas were granted access. And all of those lives got saved. Just remarkable. It is a sign of courage from Salsa. But also very disheartening to see that all of these lives rested on paper, right? If you showed up and you didn't have that, well, you were probably going to a camp. And uh, I'm trying to hold back, but we can see the uh, parallel to today with people trying to enter America for refugee reasons, for asylum. And now this is not me advocating for open borders, you won't hear that here, but To say that our process is good enough, to say that we shouldn't vet more people, uh, I think that's a moral outcry as well. We need to help people. As the country that is probably the most technologically advanced and privileged, it is a moral outrage to value documents over lives. And to wrap up the value of us giving too much attention to metaphysical realities, going to share the story that Yuval writes about communism and uh, China. So from 1958 to 1961, communist China overtook the great leap forward when Mao Zedong wished the rapidly turning China into a superpower. Intending to use surplus grain to finance ambitious industrial projects, Mao ordered the doubling and tripling of agricultural production. From the government offices in Beijing, his impossible demands made their way down the bureaucratical ladder through provincial administrators, all the way down to the village. The local officials, afraid of voicing any criticism and wishing to curry favor with their superiors, concocted imaginary reports of dramatic increases in agricultural output. As the fabricated numbers made their way back up the bureaucratic hierarchy, each official exaggerated them further, adding a zero here or there with a stroke of a pen. Consequently, in 1958 the Chinese government was informed that annual grain production was 50% more than it actually was. Believing the reports, the government sold millions of tons of rice to foreign countries in exchange for weapons and heavy machinery, assuming that enough was left to feed the Chinese population. The result was the worst famine in history, and the death of tens of millions of Chinese. The story can make one chuckle, while also being pretty depressed, because you just see how paper, pen and paper and writing and numbers, formed one of the biggest lies in the world and Costed millions of lives That is where our society is at we can send people to the moon and develop space travel and we can break the Algorithms of other life forms yet. We still get fooled by writings and dismantling cooperation It it, it is remarkable How uh, far we've come, but how so much stays the same in our brute evolution. Yuval does a great job explaining that subjectivism, though it's not going anywhere, really does take a toll on us. From there, he goes back to one of the main theses of the book, and our advancement past death and this old cultural baggage. He writes, no paradise awaits us after death. But we can create paradise here on earth and live in it forever if we just manage to overcome some technical difficulties uh, Moving on he says one day our knowledge will be so vast and our technology so advanced That we shall distill the elixir of eternal youth the elixir of true happiness and any other drug we might possibly desire and No, God will stop us on the practical level modern life consists of a constant pursuit of power within a universal devoid of meaning. Modern culture is the most powerful in history, and it is ceaselessly researching, inventing, discovering, and growing. At the same time, it is plagued by more existential angst than any previous culture. And though grim, this is true. Yuval is correct here. We have begun on a trek that, this is my personal belief, right? I, I do believe that the track we are on we will control the weather, and woe on me for saying this, I do believe the ability to enhance human life, to live for extremely elongated ages, I believe the technology's out there. I believe that if you can maintain organs, then what will kill you? We have seen that old age is just nothing but the shutting down of organs, so what happens when those are elongated? Many people push back on me saying, well, I thought you believed in God. And, well, <laughs> I don't think those contradict. Do I believe God will allow this to happen? Well, I can't say for sure. Maybe. But I believe when God is ready to enact his second coming, as we discussed in the, the second episode on this podcast, heaven, I believe that'll happen. I believe humans can try and try and try to live forever. And maybe they will reach a, uh, Finite but unfinite uh, expanse of life, where the one thing that can end it is the returning of a god, and in which case that will be God's time to shine. I was recently in Canada, visiting my grandmother. She is growing old, and it's hard to watch. Um, and I was reading this book while I was on that trip, and um, it's ceaseless to say, I, I may not get many more trips to see my grandma. Uh, But I asked my grandma, her name is Edith, I I asked her, I said, Nanny, would you like to live forever? And she said no, and I asked some, some of her friends, and they all said no as well, and one of the older ladies, I'm not saying that these are intellectual giants and philosophical rulers, but she said that, you know, we will never reach divinity, and even though I just said that I believe we'll get that technology you point about us humans sapiens reaching divinity i i don't see it happening i don't see the acceptance of it happening and on paper for the secularist to be told that you can live forever in a constant state of orgasm and euphoria why would you not do that well i see many people subscribing to that I see uh, many people hooking the electrodes up, taking the pill, and having a robot uh, make sure their sustenance is taken care of, and they are just ceaselessly in orgasm and euphoria. I believe many people will subscribe to that. But I also believe in the power of the soul, and I do believe humans will see that as empty, and refuse access to it, and refuse subscribing to it. and. I do believe the bulk of humans will reject that idea. Now it comes down to how our technology advances and we frame it. right? Will it be electrodes in the brain and a pill? Well, who knows? But maybe there'll be a pill that'll override what our emotions want. And Yuval foreshadows this, talking about how we can predict emotions. Again, I will make it abundantly clear. I do believe in free will, but the more books I read like this, And the more time I spend pondering these ideas, the harder it gets for me to explain free will. And I want to warn you, if you also believe in free will, look at the science. Look at the way that we can predict behaviors and emotions and outcomes. And I'll also note that for about two months now, I've been practicing the art of mindfulness i am not good at it yet but i've been using the waking up app made by sam harris which is the number one meditation app in the world my girlfriend also uses it and i've spoken to many other people that use it and the app is amazing it really has changed my life and i don't see myself stopping using it i think i'm at around 700 mindful minutes on there But I'll note that one of the things that Sam outlines in that app is that we don't have free will. And to show this, once you enter a state of mindfulness and you become aware of your thoughts, the invading and nagging thoughts, you begin to realize that you don't author these thoughts. When a thought enters your mind that you didn't want, whether it's a bad thought, like a morally Uh, an immoral thought, or a distracting thought, well, you didn't create that willingly. It showed up. And you would have preferred it didn't show up. So if you have free will, where did that thought come from? And Sam makes a great point here. And all other philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists make a good point here. I know another great neuroscientist, he just got his PhD in neuroscience, and I asked him if he believes in free will. He said he does, but he says it's harder and harder for him to believe it, and he's just resting on the idea of the immaterial reality. Your free will has to be immaterial. It has to be, just like the soul. And how do I, personally, uh, explain away invasive thoughts that we don't author? Now, I do believe that we have free will, and I do believe we don't author these thoughts, and I do believe they come against our will. I believe that that is a side effect of where your heart and your soul and uh, your body composure is. So what you surround yourself with, whether it be healthy things or unhealthy things, determines the rate and nature of these thoughts. And so the more peaceful you are, the more philanthropic... Uh, practices you implement in your daily life will determine the ideas that come to your mind. If you're addicted to porn, no wonder that lustful thoughts are constantly entering your mind. If you're always angry and you don't practice mindfulness and you constantly give in to your angry desires, no wonder thoughts like, damn, I want to punch this person arise in your mind, right? No wonder. I do notice I have invasive thoughts. But my invasive thoughts are personally tailored to me. If I'm in a coffee shop, my my thoughts invading me are coffee-oriented. And when I leave that coffee shop, my invading thoughts are still sometimes coffee-oriented. When I'm in a more angry side of my week, my thoughts are organized around anger. And, And the thoughts are organized around the fields that I subscribe to. And I do believe, I am not a neuroscientist, I'm not a psychologist, but I do believe that this factors in for those that believe in free will and also are perplexed by the findings of mindfulness. Now back to the topics in the book. Yuval gives us another example of how free will can be very complicated by discussing something that I also subscribe to, which is the idea of two selves. Now, personally, I believe these are intertwined into the soul, but there are two selves here. Right? There's the narrating self and the experiencing self. And the narrating self thinks more long-term. So the narrating self is the part of you that says, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to quit watching porn, I'm going to be more patient, I'm going to limit my screen time. But the experiencing self is very short-term and doesn't remember the narrating self. So the Experiencing Self is the one that does reach for the cookie or does click on the porn site or um, does have outbursts of anger and is the one that also doesn't go on the run to work out. So what do we do when our technology is able to override our Experiencing Self? So you do have the technology being developed that can override your Experiencing Self. Will you feel like your free will or your autonomy is at jeopardy? Well, honestly, it will be. Will this be something we embrace because it is done in the name of sticking to our narrative self, which is also true to us? Uh, We don't know. But it is where the questions and the slippery slope begins to take form here. When it comes to technology, we can see that it is exponentially advancing. It's not advancing linearly, and just recall that 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, we were all blown away that our phones were a touchscreen, or that they could open with your fingerprint. But nowadays, if your phone doesn't play videos in 4K, and if it doesn't open when you look at it, your phone sucks. The difference between 1780 and 1820, that 40-year period, not a lot was done, but look at our past 40 years. They are ridiculous. We advance technology so fast to where it used to be a miracle was needed every 100 years. Now we need one almost every two years. And our phones are getting more advanced. Our medicine and research is more advanced. We don't need military armies with ground troops. Now we just need some 17-year-olds in a silo in California that can fly uh, unpiloted drones in Afghanistan. And we don't need to nuke cities anymore to kill the people we want to kill. We can drop bombs on pennies with very small blast radiuses and wage our wars like that. The advancement of technology has changed our daily life Louis CK one of my favorite comedians does a stand-up bit talking about people that complain about flying and this has changed my life Louis CK has changed my life I'll say it whenever I fly right people will complain about sitting on the runway or that their chair doesn't go back or that they had to pay for their sandwich well you're in a chair in the sky. right? The trip from New York to LA, right? four or five hours, yeah, that used to take years. That used to take years. Right? You do it in four to five hours now, and we still find ways to complain. Okay? It's funny. It's also really depressing, but it also is amoral and tells us what we demand of our technology and our technology is expected to meet our demands and it will but the foreshadowing is over and the dark realities are starting to show themselves through the cracks here. What happens to liberal democracies after we get this technology? We all love democratic elections. We all love having our votes count, but what happens when a machine can tell you your true desires, right? What if you don't know who you want to vote for, and we can see that people really don't know who they want to vote for. What if we get to the point where something scans you, knows the way you live, and votes for you? Would you actually be opposed to that? See, personally, I don't know. I want to think that I would know best who to vote for for myself and others. But we can't lie. The algorithm's not evil. It's amoral. It doesn't have moral values. Unless we program it with them. And we probably will. So technology will do most of our voting for us. In which, that case, liberal elections are done away with. This idea of elongating your marriage and saving it what if an AI tells you there's nothing that can save it and if you stay together you're going to be miserable right well, we see increased divorces what happens to dating when you can just sit down and scan each other with a device and the device tells you if you're going to be compatible okay your free will and your autonomy will slowly begin to erode and Yuval is not saying this is a good thing but he's also not saying it's a bad thing. It's just almost inevitable. A company called Bedpost has designed a bracelet that you can wear during intercourse. And it tells you how long you lasted, uh, how good your orgasm was, and your thoughts, your heart rate, and everything. Right? Or at least your mood, maybe not your thoughts. And so what does Bedpost do with this device? It kind of removes... A lot of the questions you have about mating right now the the questions and the faking it are gone and this device will be the true teller this is just a slow example of how things are going to start and I might honestly say how they're going to continue because it has already started we have this idea that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder and that good music is subjective well Technology is slowly removing this from us, right? There's the one case of Marcel Ducamp who purchased a urinal and he wrote on it the words fountain and signed it with his name, and that is now in the Paris Museum of Art. Okay, that is not art. And we're getting to the place where I can objectively say that and not face ramifications. So all the people saying art is subjective? Well, the chemicals that your brain releases when you see quote-unquote good art are measurable and we're starting to realize a lot of people are faking it when they say that this is impressive art. And the same thing goes with music and this gives way to some scary findings. EMI, which stands for Experiments in Musical Intelligence, have found that AI is able to mimic Beethoven, Chopin Rachmaninov Stravinsky and can create Artistic music where people cannot distinguish between composers this idea that AI won't be able to make better art than us is beginning to fade away and we have clung to that liberal idea that art requires a soul and this impressive talent but really it's just algorithms I'll read this quote from Harari here. Why are we so confident that computers will never be able to outdo us in the composition of music? According to the life sciences, art is not the composition or product of some enchanted spirit or metaphysical soul, but rather an organic algorithm recognizing mathematical patterns. If so, there's no reason why non-organic algorithms couldn't master it better than us. And we found this to be true. and um. This is seen further where technology is advancing us, in the case of Garry Kasparov. If y'all don't know who Garry Kasparov, he is the world's greatest chess player. This is a, a fact, not an opinion, just the world's greatest chess player. And, uh, Deep Blue, which is an AI device trained to play chess, beat him. Okay, this was in the year of 1996. Okay, that's almost 30 years ago. Where do we imagine that technology is now? Now, many of us may say, oh, that's neat. And it is neat. But take a step back and look at it. Technology beat humans at a game that humans invented. Right, The best person on Team Human got beat. And the best person on Team Human continues to get beat. In video games, in board games, in the military in target accuracy, right? in reading the economy. right? Automated drones are better at your finances than you are. Right? We are bad at our own fictional creations. And how welcoming are we going to be to technology replacing a lot of the human inputs on these? It certainly does open up the moral gray area. Lastly, and this is not lastly in the book, but lastly what we will discuss here, um, he talks about dataism. Dataism will be the new religion. And data and technology and the so-called internet of all things will be the Yahweh of the world. And it will be conform or perish. You must conform to continue living. And the lifestyles of dataism will vastly overtake non-dataism. Right, And it makes sense that we would embrace this. Right? Even I embrace dataism to a certain extent. Right, If technology can read diseases better than humans can, and can diagnose and manufacture vaccines better than humans can, I am all for that. Humans kill millions and millions every year driving. If automated cars on one global network drive better than humans, and save millions of lives, I'm okay with that. I'm also okay with saying that it is a moral outrage if you choose to drive your own car when autonomous vehicles are widely available. Because you will be putting other people at risk. I subscribe to that. And when we get to the stage where we can atom for atom, invent meat, and we no longer need to end the lives of animals, again, I'm all for that. So I embrace dataism to an extent. Right, removing sickness, removing pain, enhancing life expectancies, right, better infrastructure, better economies. Where I get skeptical is eternal life, right, the moral loss of free will, the exposure of the line of subjectivity. I think it will remove a lot of the talents that the organic human possesses. I think one of the things that makes us remarkable is how far we've come being just organic beings. We have done a lot for the human species. We've also done a lot of harm, but when we look at the greatness and the achievements and checkpoints that the human species has reached, it will be hard to watch that all get replaced by algorithms and buttons. Now, putting the book down, because I'm gonna move to uh, my opinionated discussion of the book. I realize that my opinion has been bleeding throughout this. It's because it is a 420 page book. It's hard for me to retain all of my opinions in one sitting. But I feel like it's important when discussing things like God and our hypothetical extinction and controversial ideas. I mean, so like eugenics, I think it's important my opinion slips in there for a little bit. But moving on, uh, first I want to talk about the uh, premise that Yuval builds his case on, which is that God is now useless. And uh, he does bring up some good points that I believe add to his argument. Right, The idea that God explains illness and war and famine, I mean that is what many people believed for the longest time. I mean, we see this in scripture, right? When when Job is facing all his tribulations, his friends ask him what he did wrong, as if sickness is a sign that you're out of the will of God. And, you know, individuals would pray for rain, and when the rain didn't come, it's because they were angering some god. And, I mean, it all makes sense um, when viewed from a precarious position of secularism and when you don't have a lot of hermeneutical intelligence like Yuval does. So I can't necessarily blame him for believing that God is now useless. Uh, And it does make sense that humans will try to take this place of God. But I do see this failing. I do see even if people can live forever, there will be an existential crisis still with people. But this is a rough topic, simply because we are not there yet, and uh, I remain pretty firm in my belief in Christianity, although it gets easier and easier to see my beliefs being transformed into different ideas and philosophies. I have always stated I subscribe more to reality than my religion, and where reality trumps my religion, I stick with reality. And uh, that will be my philosophy moving forward. I've just always found that my religion coincides with reality uh, to the best degree. I have found that my religion explains reality best. And for many people out there saying things like, just give us enough time and science will explain the origins of universe and the space-time continuum you're basically saying that we will find a natural explanation for nature. Well, that can't precede nature itself. That's the same as saying, you give me enough time, just just give me enough time, and I'll show you how I gave birth to my mother. Okay, not only is it unlikely, it's just not possible. It breaks the laws of logic, which all of us subscribe to. I believe I can skip over my parts on human-animal relations, because I expounded that enough in this episode. Um, I want to move to AI. AI is a big topic for me, and one I feel I have invested a lot of my time and resources into. Um, in my applications for grad school, I chose the idea of AI and wealth inequality as one of my thesis proposals, and my proposal centered around the idea of AI replacing all, if not most, automated jobs in America, and what that does to wealth inequality. So when you don't need anyone working in a grocery store, when you don't need truck drivers anymore, when you don't need cooks anymore, uh, what happens to all these jobs? Well, the idea, and the idea of AI that I embrace, is that cost of living will go down, and we'll be able to, as Sam Harris says, pull wealth out of the ether. Right, That is a great idea, and I welcome that. To abolish all uh, undesirable labor, to where all people can do is make art and eat and drink what they want. That sounds amazing, and I'm down for it. But it doesn't appear that that is going to be the reality. So if cost of living goes down, right, so, so the idea is, you have all these machines doing all your farming. You have all these machines making your food. So the labor cost goes out of all of these things. Right, so the cost, like your your vegetables when you buy your produce from the store, well, you're paying a lot for the farming labor. But now you can subtract that, and you can subtract the fee it took to drive it because a robot did that, um, and all materials should go down, right? And all services should go down. I shouldn't have to pay for a house as much as I normally would if it was built in two days by AI. But my belief is cynical. I do not believe that the wealth will trickle down. Rather, I believe if the American model of wealth inequality and oligarchy-style capitalism continues, the wealth will go up even higher and will stay there. And the poor will become the basic class. And we'll see the complete removal of the middle class. As I said earlier, I am a capitalist. I do believe that liberal capitalism is the key to a good economy. But if you think, here in America, we have a good model of capitalism, you are mistaken. Hell, I hesitate to even call this capitalism. As I said, I, I call it an oligarchy. Right, When you have Amazon consuming every business and putting most businesses to be obsolete, when you have Walmart and all these other corporations that just consume, consume, consume small businesses, you are not in a capitalist society. You are living under an oligarchy. And this is why I refuse to support Amazon. And my friends point out jokingly that I end up supporting one corporation or another, and I mean, I guess it's because it's so hard to avoid it, and the fact that it's hard to avoid is a scary sign of the times we are in. So when you bring AI into the picture here, I, I as long as taxation and the flow of wealth continues, I am not hopeful for the uh, results of AI. I don't believe that when AI automates most surgeries, our healthcare is going to go down. And I don't believe we'll see really any changes. Rather, I think it'll be seen as a luxury and the price may even increase. Right? Imagine how many truckers we have employed, how many grocery store clerks we have employed. Uh, imagine all the plumbers and mechanics and all of these different things. Well, what happens when they're all jobless. Alright, so you've all know Harari and and I subscribe to this idea of we'll have something called the useless class. They're not artistically viable, right, if we humans are even creating art at that time. They're not artistically or technically useful. So what will they do? How will we house them? And if you think the elitist jobs are gonna be the last ones to go, think again, it gets quite strange here, because there's some jobs like brain surgery, which it's very easy to see that being automatized, while being a plumber may be harder to automatize. No doubt all of these things will probably be automated soon, but yeah, it'll be a strange collection of upper and lower class people losing their jobs. Right? A therapist will probably stay in business more than a surgeon will. And a plumber will probably stay in business more than a CEO will. And one of the points I like to give is, one of the first jobs that should be taken away in these instances is that of the CEO. Right, The CEO does not have better algorithms than a machine will on how to run the business. The machine will know how to tend to the emotional needs and the financial needs at the best rate than the CEO will. So for all of the greed-hungry capitalists out there excited for AI, I would vote that your job should be the first to go. So to continue on the point of AI, anyone who's worried about AI, and I advocate that we are not worried enough, we're not worried about a Terminator takeover. right? Rather, we're worried about Where does the moral justification fall on these machines? So, think of automated war machines. So, I picture a sniper. And when you read the accounts of snipers, they are emotional. Because you are in a position where you see the person you're killing very clearly through your scope. And you humanize them. You can see their facial expressions, their mood. Sometimes you can tell if they've just eaten or not. You can tell if they're frenzied or calm. And those snipers, uh, luckily in America our snipers do an excellent job at doing doing their mission, but maybe it's good that they carry around ramifications of killing someone. Maybe that's a good thing, I don't know. Many would argue that if we can remove all mental ramifications of killing from our soldiers, that would be a good thing. I see how that can be effective, but does anyone else see how that dehumanizes our soldiers? The fact that it's a commandment not to murder, maybe that ties into the natural response our body gives us when we murder someone. So, what happens when machines do all of it? We're already halfway there with drone strikes. Instead of knowing who you're killing and having to go survey the damage, you now press a button while you're in California and watch on an infrared screen a explosion on a distant house, and some other team will go in and clean up the mess. War is already becoming very different, and I don't know how that looks on the moral landscape. Some more technical complications come with self-driving cars. Though I see the desperate need for self-driving cars, as humans again, as I said, are just terrible drivers. Well, you need to learn how to program these cars in a certain way. And one common question is, is if the car goes on a crash course, does it know to crash into the building, killing the driver? Or does it crash into the crowd of people, saving the driver? Who is prioritized? Will the programmers put in a racial bias? Uh, many students and universities say it's better for two white people to die than one black person. Uh, I think that's ridiculous. And though I understand that that is a fringe group of people, uh, hypothetically you have to ask if what if one of those people is working on the car? And likewise in other soon-to-be automated jobs. So, There's a lot of technical complications here. How will we embrace the idea of being socially useless? How will we embrace the idea that machines will know us better than we know ourselves? I don't know. All I know is I'm pretty scared of it. Though I embrace it, and I don't see us doing anything to stop it, it has to be done properly. Yuval has written a perplexing book. Like I said, it's one of the best books I've ever read. It gets me worried, but it also leaves me with motivation. And it should to all of y'all. I think this book does a good job at putting statistics and facts in front of your face, and basically encouraging you not to ignore them. Right? We cannot continue our lives in ignorance. As I wanted to say, I did not exhaust this book. There's still plenty of... Uh, crazy stories and extrapolations to be made from the book itself I encourage everyone to read this it is I mean it's just mind-blowing it is a foreshadowing but also a call to action for all intellectuals and people that want to be part of the shaping of the future and I just want you to know that if you are not doing anything to advocate for the shaping of our future in a positive light you are part of the problem I I do see our future in jeopardy. Climate change threatens us more and more every year. Um, The development of AI and wealth inequality, uh, the prison system, many of these things threaten us. And we are at a stage now where the problems are so great that, yeah, if you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. And uh, though the book does outline how far we have come, and I'm grateful for that we still have a long ways to go and it's not unbiblical to want to perfect society right so if we have the ability to invent technology that treats us better than doctors will it's not unbiblical to advocate for that you may think that god has given someone the gift of great surgery but when we have an ai that does it better you will be immoral to advocate for the human to do it Likewise, you'll be immoral to advocate for the human driver and to advocate for humans to keep their jobs when AIs just expedite it tenfold. Only if AIs effectively bring down the cost of living. And according to my view, they will not. So here's some steps that I have implemented and I encourage all of y'all to implement. Do not go to the self-checkout line. Just don't. Right? And if it takes you 5-10 more minutes to stand in the normal line, stand in it. And really do. I encourage people to get off dating apps and to keep dating themselves. And explore it naturally that way. And the reason for is because I am ready for automated checkouts and helpful dating advice. But I don't see that as beneficial to society in this moment under our current model. And when our model changes, I will embrace the self-checkout line and the self-driving delivery. But until then, I am gladly uh, keeping people in their jobs because I do see their jobs at risk. And I don't think they'll get better jobs or be transferred to new departments when AI takes over. So... With that all being said, uh, I just encourage y'all to uh, keep looking forward and though things will change, uh, things have always changed. And we've never regretted changing. Uh, We've regretted some actions we've taken in the midst of change, but no one regrets the invention of the airplane or the automobile. No one regrets the invention of the MRI scanner to detect cancer. And likewise, I don't think we'll regret the invention of the self-driving car or the self-flying plane, or the brain surgery AI. I don't think we'll regret that, but it's how we go about it. Right? At first we chose to make passenger planes instead of fighter planes. And at first we chose to have automobiles instead of tanks. What will be our first inventions with AI? Well, we get to choose. And are we going to advocate for healthy liberal societies, or are we going to continue in our capitalistic, oligarchy-crazed, selfish, self-serving mindsets? Well, we get to choose. Let me say that our God is not absent. I believe he is ever-present. I believe he is as present today as he was in the time of Moses. And I don't believe he's going anywhere. And I don't believe he's left us behind. Our God knows what's happening. And he sees it. And maybe he's impressed whenever we make surgery AI or self-driving AI. That can glorify God. It is how the Homo sapien revolves around this. And how it chooses to utilize it. And the composure of the soul in its wake. These things will determine the response of God. And uh, only God knows the future. We do not. But we await it. With great eagerness and anticipation. We are very impressive creatures. We have come a long way. When we look at where we were. 750,000 years ago. When many believe the first human. With a soul. Roamed the earth. The advancements. I mean it's just remarkable. And I do believe that. Us using our brain is giving glory to God. I believe philosophical advancements and the intellectually capable of our earth are doing a great service to God. He gave us our brains, and though many of us may abuse our brains for unlawful and immoral reasons, many of us are countering that and using our intellect for greatness, and I look forward to seeing the next wave of greatness with the coming generations of humans though the age of technology can be scary and though we are unsure of what we will become there is reasons to hope and uh, I encourage all of us to continue asking questions of God and challenging him even right if we are too afraid to question the existence of our God that says a lot about the nature of our faith So, continue to test the reality of God, and come to find, every time you challenge it, every time you seek to disprove your faith, you'll find it is stronger than ever. And this will not change. I do not believe technology will suppress this reality. So, similar to last episode, I want us to end on a poem. I was inspired... By this poem when I first heard it, uh, and then I got re inspired when I watched my favorite movie of all time, Interstellar. Uh, the poem just adds a great layer of death to that movie, and uh, I think this is a great poem to recite in the coming age of technology. So, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, Because their words had forked no lightning, They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, Crying how bright their frail deeds Might have danced in a green bay rage rage against the dying of the light wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learn too late they grieved it on its way do not go gentle into that good night grave men near death who see the blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay rage rage against the dying of the light and you my father there on the sad height curse bless me now with your fierce tears i pray do not go gentle into that good night rage rage against the dying of the light i'm gonna spontaneously pray on the exit of this podcast uh this book has just really provoked my existentialism and uh Maybe yours too. So, Lord, we thank you for our days, though we do not deserve them. We thank you for awakening us and giving us a brain. Lord, we thank you for overseeing our advancements. Lord, we apologize for our misuse of your blessing. We apologize for the abuse of your creation. Lord, we seek your forgiveness. Lord, we know that you love us, and we promise not to take that for granted, though our actions say otherwise. Lord, watch over us as we head into this new age. We acknowledge that you are ever-present. We acknowledge that your throne is not empty. We acknowledge your son sitting on your right hand. Lord, help us to not lose faith in you. As our society continues to dim your light, you shine brighter. In all the attempts to prove you irrelevant, you have shown yourself to be more and more present. So Lord, we again thank you. Amen.